This is Macro Horizons, episode 34. Wake me up when the trade war ends. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 3rd. And for anyone who didn't catch the Green Day reference, it's from their album titled American Idiot. Couldn't even make that up. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. All things considered, it has been an exciting week in the Treasury market, which isn't something that we can typically say for the last week of August. To be fair, we haven't really had the summer doldrums that one might intuitively expect, at least not thus far in 2019. Perhaps that ends up being a September story, although that does seem unlikely given the number of headlines that continue to fly around related to the trade war and ever-escalating geopolitical concerns. We do have 10-year yields continuing to trade near the bottom of the range. We have the curve dutifully inverted, signaling a classic policy error response from the market. And the big question now becomes, what is the Fed going to do? Are they going to deliver another 25 basis points and be done there? Is it going to be 50 for an aggregate of 75? Or is the market ultimately going to force the Fed's hand? The administration has escalated the trade war to yet another, frankly, unforeseeable level in which Trump is now suggesting that he has the authority to force private companies not to deal with China. It will be interesting to see how that all plays out, but our biggest takeaway from the episode has been ever-increasing uncertainties, which will continue to weigh on Treasury yields. It's notable, however, that it hasn't done a great deal of damage to the equity market per se. Now, that being said, the S&P is 5% off of its peak. The recent updates on the real economy, whether it's in the form of slightly disappointing durable goods, the core data, the shipments of the non-defense X-Air category, or even personal income. Our takeaway at this point is that it is a mixed data profile, and while consumer spending continues apace, we haven't seen the type of contraction that we would expect to translate through into an actual economic slowdown. In terms of the recent supply, we had a strong reception to the two- and five-year auctions, which were taken down with reasonable ease. The seven-year did require a larger tail than typical, although given where we are in the calendar, the relatively choppy price action and the proximity to the low-yield marks, it isn't troubling for longer-term sponsorship of Treasury securities. Part of the underlying impetus for the recent backup in yields has been 
what one might characterize as an olive branch on the trade war front extended by China, suggesting that they will not seek additional retaliatory tariffs at this point, but rather try to pursue a path of de-escalation. Again, as with the broader uncertainties, Surrounding the recasting of the global trade stage, we don't expect that this will truly mark a turning point in the trade negotiations, but rather simply a respite and one that has allowed the treasury market to consolidate somewhat. Although we'd be challenged to say that this has been a bearish period for treasuries, particularly given the outright level of yields and the proximity to the lows. In terms of the technical landscape, Sentiment has moved into classic overbought territory. While that doesn't necessitate a bearish correction, we do think that the first week of September will be characterized by at least an initial attempt to push rates a little bit higher. So this past week seemed to be a good example of the seasonals playing out as they historically have. Yeah, there certainly does appear to be a fair amount of inertia in the treasury market at this moment. Lower yields and a flatter curve as investors attempt to assess exactly how much damage has been done to the real economy globally and what the prospects of flow through to the domestic economy really are. One of the things that I have found somewhat surprising is how well consumer confidence has managed to remain at elevated levels despite all of the uncertainty created by yet another escalation of the trade war. This is important primarily because there is so much concentration in the U.S. economy on consumption, and any significant recession would find its origins on the consumer side. It's also worth highlighting that we had a much weaker than expected core durable goods number on Monday. And while that has been associated with incremental downward revisions for the contribution from business spending to real GDP in the third quarter, it hasn't led to a renewed round of concerns that the trade war is ultimately going to push business spending lower and drive a recession sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think those two data points kind of capture really what is the operative narrative at this point. And that is the difference between business sentiment and consumer sentiment. Sure, we've seen the impact of the trade war start to flow through, particularly to the manufacturing side. Within that core durables release, primary metals was an area of particular weakness, which although a little bit out of our area of expertise, one would have to assume is primarily related to manufacturing activity. However, as you highlighted, the consumer side of things seems to be holding up pretty well, all things considered. And particularly within the conference board series, that labor differential figure, which is jobs plentiful minus jobs hard to get, climbed to the highest level since November 2000 which is a little bit counterintuitive given it seems that quote-unquote recessionary fears have been the primary driver of the price action over the past week. Now a 19-year high labor differential points to a continually tight labor market, which is exactly the contradiction at this stage in the cycle, at least for the Fed. We've heard several of the more hawkish members quote exactly that as a reason why they continue to favor rates on hold versus a more aggressive easing campaign, and why I think we can expect to see at least a few dissents at the September FOMC. Well, the one thing that I would add here is it's important to keep in mind not only is all economic data to a large extent lagging, but the employment market in particular has a history of lagging the broader shifts in the direction of the overall growth profile. So even within the conference board data, 
keep in mind that's sentiment data, and it's sentiment data based on consumers' impression of the labor market at this exact moment. So it wouldn't be inconceivable to see that pendulum swing rather dramatically if and when we do finally see a trade war-inspired round of layoffs and more rationalization on the labor front. And particularly ahead of next week's NFP number, while to say it won't matter may be a bit too extreme, but it will, in all likelihood, confirm the things we already know. Jobs remain tight, wages continue to grow, and unemployment is still near a half-century low. It begs the question, what happens if that's not the case? There's a tendency for the September release of August NFP to disappoint. So if that seasonal pattern presents itself again, even if we have reasonable average hourly earnings, we might find ourselves in a situation where the treasury market is able to extend the rally even a bit further. And not only extend the rally, but also extend the flattening. And as twos tens continues to push further into inversion, it's going to really come down to that September 18th meeting to kick off what we still think will be the cyclical re-steepening. And unlike the July FOMC, where there was no dot plot offered, we'll be able to see exactly what committee members have penciled in for the future path of rates via their adjustments to the dots. You do bring up a good question, Ben, and that is what happens to the shape of the curve if the employment report disappoints? You seem to be suggesting that it automatically means a flattener. But if, as we've stated, the fact of the matter is that employment is the one last strong pillar within the domestic economy, and there's clear evidence of weakness in the job sector, that actually might trigger a rally in the front end of the curve, as the perception would then be that the Fed will ultimately need to deliver more than simply 75 basis points worth of aggregate rate cuts. So said another way, maybe would be we're at the moment where it's policy error versus bad news is good again. And that's really what the treasury market has been trading over the course of the summer. There's been a renewed debate, not only whether or not monetary policy can be effective in the current environment, or as we saw recently with the Bill Dudley op-ed, whether or not it's appropriate for monetary policy to preempt what might be significant fallout from the trade war. So the essence of Dudley's argument was essentially that Powell has potentially extended how far the administration is willing to push the trade war simply by shifting to an easier monetary policy stance earlier than one might have otherwise expected. The takeaway being that Powell's effort to prevent near-term damage might create more medium-term damage and slow the broader economic outlook. And the Dudley piece at its essence was a defense of central bank independence. And this comes back to something that we've been talking a lot about as Trump's criticism of Powell continues to ramp up, is that again, it comes down to whether or not the Fed will err a bit more hawkishly in order to be viewed as a bit more independent, or if the trade war really is prompting more accommodative monetary policy, which at this stage I think it is, then that runs the risk as the Fed being viewed as potentially being pulled into a realm that is a bit more political than they've historically been. That's spot on. And truly, that's the risk that Powell and the Fed face at this moment. It promises to be an interesting September meeting, to be sure. One of my underlying questions is, and I think you alluded to this earlier, Ben, does the economic data really matter? Is there anything that we could see over the course of the next two weeks that would change the course of monetary policy? Sure, 
if we see evidence that the domestic economy finally has come off the rails, that would prompt the Fed to do more. But a steady state reasonable growth profile really isn't going to be as important as what happens with the trade war. Is there any further escalation? How does the yuan reprice? Does that weakness start to flow through to other emerging markets? It really has gotten away from the traditional matrix that decision makers use to set monetary policy. And this past week offered yet another example of things going on outside just the domestic economy with the latest flare-up in Brexit. You now have reports of Boris Johnson attempting to suspend Parliament for the period building up to the Brexit deadline in the fall, which just serves to add for the prospects of a no-deal Brexit, which is just the latest bullet point of the risks facing the European economy at a time when the data there is already starting to look not so good. But my question to you then, Ben, is how much of that's priced in? Look, we have record low 30-year yields. We have 10-year yields pushing back towards the lowest levels they've ever seen, which is effectively 132 in the middle of 2016. And still, we're worried about incremental downside risks out of Europe. We had German GDP just print at negative 0.1% quarter over quarter for last quarter. And while the German economy is not technically in a recession, over the last 12 months, this is not the first quarter of negative growth Berlin has reported. So this brings us back to what I would characterize as the real point of contention in the market between now and the end of the year. Have the downside risks for the real economy been overpriced? And is the market due for a corrective sell-off? Now, I'll be the first one to admit that I have been worried that the pricing has been extended in favor of lower yields. However, the explanation of the constructive seasonals has resonated reasonably well thus far. But what happens during the fourth quarter when, if we look at the last 10 years, it tends to be a relatively bearish period for the treasury market? And we've gotten the question a few times of, well, what will it be this time around? That's going to spark this next year is going to be great optimism. And the easy answer there is a really dovish Fed in September. Well, that would certainly trigger a steepener. I'm with you on that. But imagine a situation where we continue to see reasonably good core CPI prints. We've now seen three-tenths of a percent back-to-back in the last couple months. The economic growth comes in good, not great. There's some version of a stalemate reached in the, the global trade war. Then what happens to the longer end of the curve? Well, the inflation point of that would really just serve as a cap, in my opinion. And a cap in the long end translates to a ceiling on how far the curve will be able to steepen this cycle. Certainly something that seems consensus to say nothing of the fact that if the data doesn't hold up, Another QE program will be quickly put back on the table, which again is just going to weigh on long end rates and naturally bring the bar lower for how steep the curve will be able to get, at least when compared to cycles past. I don't know if I'd characterize it as a cap per se, but it certainly will be a motivator to push longer rates higher, at least in the very short term, especially if the Fed is able to really recast the way that the market believes they're going to address inflation or its return in the next few years. An issue that I think has been underappreciated in the Treasury market is to your point, the potential for QE, the fact that the Fed is actually in actively buying in outright terms in the treasury market. The process has been underway for a few weeks now. There seems to be very, very little disruption. Now, 
we're not actually seeing a true balance sheet expansion. Rather, it's simply the mortgage bonds which are maturing and being prepaid, that runoff with a cap of $20 billion is being reallocated into the treasury market. Not necessarily news per se, but it is notable how easily the process has returned to what was the classic days of QE. Yeah, and while lowercase QE, so to speak, is back, the outright notional values of these purchases, the upcoming week will be $3.6 billion, is hardly anything that we think will materially alter the direction for rates. But it might follow intuitively that it should push mortgage rates higher because the Fed for a long time had been the marginal buyer in the mortgage market. So it's difficult not to call it a success to see this transition by the Fed away from mortgages at a point when mortgage rates continue to fall steadily. Now, part of that is where we are in the broader interest rate cycle, but the fact of the matter is that the Fed is actively reallocating its portfolio away from MBS and into treasury holdings which all else equal, will continue to weigh on rates. Well, there apparently seems to be quite a bit weighing on rates in the current environment. Now, granted, it is the end of summer, which is historically a period that is associated with relatively limited liquidity and sharp moves in the treasury market. But is there something else going on? And it will be interesting to see as the market returns to its seat, so to speak, if the cooler heads narrative that we've heard discussed does play out, and we see at least a modest walk back of the moves of the past, call it, two weeks. The caveat that I'll add here is the sharpest overnight move in 30-year yields was actually accompanied by a spike in volumes to roughly 140% of the two-week moving average, as well as a large concentration of those flows in the 30-year sector. I think it was roughly 8%. So that coupled with reports, at least anecdotally, of buying interest at the beginning of the Asian session, as well as at the beginning of the London session, speaks to this notion that there are buyers of 30-year treasury debt at these levels below 2%, and it's not necessarily being done on a hedged basis, which from a longer-term perspective does suggest that there really is a consistent, deep, underlying amount of demand for treasury securities as an asset class. Regardless of geography. Fair enough. But it is a globalized market, and it is a globalized economy. At least for now. In the week ahead, the treasury market will have an onslaught of economic data, including several top-tier releases, non-farm payrolls, ISM manufacturing, average hourly earnings, the unemployment rate, these will all be factors that will lay the groundwork for just how far the Fed will have cover to ease rates. But as we have seen, the domestic economy is not the driver of U.S. rates at this moment. One of the broader concerns that we continue to face is, will the domestic economic data remain strong enough for the Fed to only deliver 75 basis points in aggregate rate cuts. So we could envision one of two scenarios playing out over the course of the next couple months. The first one being that the economic data continues apace, which means a relatively tight labor market, reasonable, although still low by historic standards, inflationary gains, 
all the time, the trade war continues as a background factor, but doesn't take another step towards escalation comparable to what we've seen this summer. In that scenario, it's reasonable to expect that the Fed will be done after two more quarter point rate cuts. And then the big question becomes, how does the treasury market respond to that? Is it a bull flattener? Or is it a bear steepener? We don't envision a parallel repricing toward higher yields once the Fed is done, but rather we'll be attempting to derive investor sentiment from how the curve performs. A deeper inversion suggests that the Fed is risking a policy error, at least in the eyes of investors, and we might find ourselves in a situation where the Fed is effectively locked into doing more rate cuts, even if the domestic data continues to show relative strength. On the flip side, if the data deteriorates, which to a large extent is what is being priced in, so if we see the domestic economy start to slow somewhat in the second half of this year, in that environment, I would expect that the Fed will simply be called upon to deliver greater rate cuts in an effort to forestall any actual recession in the U.S. in 2020. This week, we get a variety of Fed speak, including Williams and Powell. We don't anticipate a significant divergence from the message that has been coming out of the FOMC. However, the event risk is very real. We've long maintained that the Fed will, at some point, attempt to moderate the market's expectations for what is being priced in beyond the first 75 basis points of rate cuts. Now, the September meeting is the ideal moment at which we might see the Fed deliver 25 basis points, perhaps commit to another 25 indirectly, but start to talk the market away from even more. I really think that that is the biggest communications challenge that the Fed is going to have between now and year end, and how Powell manages that messaging, frankly, is going to dictate to a large extent exactly how far the Fed has to cut rates, otherwise risk a tightening of financial conditions via a spike in equity vol if investors feel the Fed is behind the curve. We've reached a point in this week's episode where we would like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And while we may never know, We'll be pondering if a rates podcast falls on a holiday weekend and no one's around to hear it, does it still make a pun? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.